This is Hannah Thompson, and you're listening to Bluecast's new child podcast, Blue Room, brought to you by Indiana Review. Today, we're previewing Cunt by Sean Griffiths from Indiana Review, Volume 39, Number 2, and interviewing nonfiction editor Anna Kabe on why she selected this piece. calls on a Monday, leaving a message on the office voicemail, but it is his minutes later follow-up email I receive first. He introduces himself as a graduate student, thinking about taking my summer fiction writing class. The problem? He thinks my absence policy is too strict. He calls it inhuman in his phone message, repeating that word when he flags me down in the hall after my night class. As we talk, he tells me that he had another professor with an absence policy when he was an undergrad. He missed a week for medical reasons. She failed me, he says, and I was like, well, you're a cunt. Cunt. The word lashes out. No, that's not accurate. That's only how I feel it. From his stance, it is more casual, something to be slung around, dropped, forgotten. I know that he isn't calling me a cunt, though I have the potential to be one, and probably will be if I stick to my policy, which I will. I understand, too, that he does not say this word to his other professor. He is talking about his feelings, representing them in words. This is his gut-level thought response. Still, I'm speechless. The kid seems well-spoken and intelligent, and not only well-spoken, but soft-spoken, His mouth wraps the word cunt in bunny fur. He laughs and smiles, almost but not quite blushing, his face boyish and jovial under his facial piercings. You have to ignore curse words from me, he says. They're just part of who I am. Later, he adds, I'm queer. We use that word in my community. I have a shirt that says cunt that I wear to class. I comb through my feelings, sorting one from the other. The one I'm surest of is this. The context in which he just used the word is hateful. He is not reclaiming a word made ugly by bigotry. He threw gender like a grenade. Also, he has a clear misunderstanding of how words work if he believes that he can single-handedly define their meaning, as if they hold no communally determined denotations or connotations, as if they have no history. Not only does he ignore the context in which he used it, but he also ignores our current context. I am a professor, and potentially his professor. In social terms, I am closer to the woman he described than I am to him. This hallway snag is a professional interaction. I am a person who, if he takes my course, will grade his work and write letters of reference and support his career, or not. Cultural context plays in as well. Henry Rawson's Dictionary of Invective calls cunt the most heavily tabooed word of all English words. The Oxford English Dictionary agrees, saying, Despite widespread use over a long period and in many sections of society, cunt remains the English word most avoided as taboo. This student can assume that I have heard cunt used to deride women. That's what cultural context does. It creates a set of shared assumptions by which we can navigate word choice. 
I've heard cunt used playfully, too, and I can recognize the difference, but that is something less safe to assume. As a creative writing professor, I prevent students from silencing the stories of their classmates during workshop. Students uncomfortable with LGBTQ themes have called such work inappropriate for class. More than once, students have refused to read their peers' work as if refusal to read were a moral stance, but writers do not have the right to determine each other's subject matter. Just as more conservative students have the right to express their political and religious beliefs, so my LGBTQ students should write towards their own convictions, giving voice to experiences others would prefer closeted and unspoken. Defending free speech is fundamental to my beliefs. Which leads me to this question. If I silence this student's word choice, am I infringing on his rights or merely defending my own? His anecdote is not a story written for class. It's a piece of his life story, related here in a campus hallway. The distinction is, in many ways, academic. As much as I try to unhear it, his words are laced with a subtext that I don't want to acknowledge, the assumption that his status as a gay man supersedes my status as a woman. His context is more important than my context. Any reasons I might have for balking at that word are irrelevant. Only his reasons for using it matter. I don't want to split, staring each other down from opposite sides of a dichotomy. Same team, same team, I want to yell. Though we are not, not exactly. I don't want to be aware of this. We should be fighting together in an ongoing battle against the larger social forces that would deny our equality. I don't want to have to figure out our relative positions on the great chain of being, the invisible hierarchy of oppressions determining so much of our daily lives. I'm sick of hierarchy. I'm sick of being aware of it. On the scale of insulting comments, calling another professor a cunt isn't the worst I've heard. Perhaps, I think hopefully, he sees using the word as a way of including me in his group, a person with whom he can throw cunt around. I would defend a community's right to take a word back, to reclaim. I'd love to think he's including me. Yet his usage isn't reclaiming the word at all. He is using it in exactly the hateful spirit in which cunt evolved as an insult. His phrasing suggests that the other female professor slighted him not because of legitimate educational concerns, but because she has a vagina and is therefore mean-spirited and shrewish or worse. He's claiming another privilege, one I've defended for all students. He wants not only the power to speak, but to claim language on his own terms and determine its meaning. I want student writers to feel some ownership with language. It allows them to play, to nudge words a little here and there, to make us see words fresh and understand them in new and profound ways. Only he's forgotten that language is always a negotiation between user and receiver, between text and subtext, text and context. He has forgotten that ultimately, we only get a little room to play because words are embedded in weighty histories. He has forgotten that every speaker requires a listener. Underneath these questions is the rumble of one thundering thought. How dare he use my own vagina as a tool against me? Then again, he's just a kid. A kid who sees me as inhuman. Or at least, a kid who sees my syllabus as inhuman. But my syllabus is also an extension of me. The version of the professor me that I commit to the page in the form of policies and readings and assignments and schedules. 
He lobbed that word at me twice, I remind myself, before he stabbed with the sharper-bladed word. He, a consumer of education, is unhappy. I, the automaton professor, am to blame. He is the only human here. As a customer, he feels sure he is right. Even as I sort through all these arguments, knowing I could articulate at least some of them, they go unspoken. Where's my fight, my wit, my normal responses are MIA? Why? Because even as the thoughts are flooding my brain, I feel the pull of more powerful forces. I've been on campus for 12 hours. I'm hungry and tired and ready for home. And perhaps more importantly, I don't want to look like a prude. Prude, a word invoked to shame women into performing actions they themselves find shameful, and further, to prevent them from speaking out against ideas and behaviors they find offensive. Prude is an electric cattle prod of a word, a word designed to put us into the old binaries of virgin whore, good evil, cool nerdy, Sandra D. Rizzo, naivete knowledge. I don't silence the student. I allow his words to silence me. I want to be cool, open-minded, fun. I don't want to get into it. I want to ask my kids about their day, put them to bed, make a sandwich, and sit in a quiet room where no one wants anything from me. If he enrolls, I tell myself, we'll deal with this then. A colleague of mine, an immensely talented Filipina poet, tells me this is how to recognize microaggression. The exhaustion of not wanting to explain what you've already explained in a million other contexts, a million other times. I wonder about this. Confronting a professor three times, by phone, by email, in person, about her absence policy, a policy on a syllabus already vetted and approved by the English department's Master of Arts Committee, doesn't feel like microaggression or passive aggression. It's open aggression. It says, I, a man, have decided to bring you, a woman, into line. It says, I reject your role as a professor. It says, I know better than you. For two days, I parse the situation. I decide I'm not going to pursue it, and then I am, and then I'm not. His word was a slip, but it suggests a lack of boundaries and respect. I don't want to be guided by a bruised ego. I want to make certain I am not being vindictive. Finally, I ask our graduate coordinator if anyone has had problems with this student. No, she says, turning her desk chair to face me fully. Are you? I'm not sure. I tell her about the phone call, the email, the hallway conversation. I confess I'm at a loss for what to do, and that I'm fairly certain the answer is nothing. I should have taken care of it, and I missed my chance. Finally, I asked if he had earned one of our teaching assistantships. Yes, it turns out. The master's committee awarded him an assistantship the previous morning. He will teach freshman composition this fall. Young women will be in his classroom under his care, judged by his standards. I do not think of my vagina as a cunt. I do not think of it as a pussy or a box or a tuna boat or a honey pot or a snatch or a vertical smile or a bearded clam or sugar walls or a muff or a cock socket or a coochie or anything fishy. To be honest, I do not even think of it as a vagina. Unless I must name it, I don't. I reject cunt with its history of malice and I cringe at the cold medicinal sound of vagina. These names, all names, were constructed by others. 
I don't want to reclaim any of them. I'm uninterested. It is a piece of me, a gender and thereby self-defining characteristic that I keep to myself and yet wear on every inch of my skin. It maps the layout of my bones. It is my greatest vulnerability, a place where I am penetrable. I want to call it my strength as well, but that may be going too far. What it provides is akin to strength, but separate from the masculine ideal strength normally evokes. I have no idea to what extent it defines my personality or limits my options. I can and have imagined the amputation of various body parts, the loss of a finger, the plucking of an eye, the severed foot. My vagina is part of my core, unsegmentable from the whole. Hi, Anna. How are you? Hi, Hannah. Could you tell us a little bit about your position at IR? All right. So this year, I'm the nonfiction editor for IR. Um, and basically, all that means is I'm in charge of like the essay selection for each issue. So what I do is I read general submissions. I solicit um, work from writers I admire, and then from that I go ahead and select um, work that will go on to the next round of decision. Um, I bring it to nonfiction deliberation meetings and then we vote. And then if all goes well, um, the essays appear in the next issue. When this piece was up for deliberation, you were the web editor, is that correct? Yes, I was the web editor. So what part did you play in the selection process for Kant? Yes, so I essentially was a nonfiction reader um, or associate um, nonfiction editor last year. Um, I pretty much went to all the meetings for nonfiction and I did um, and I read uh, for those meetings. At Indiana Review, we get a lot of personal essays and I love personal essays and I think I'm still drawn to those essays, but Something I really admired about Kant when I first read it is the wealth and depth of research that went into it. And I think something that also makes this work uh, for this particular journal is that the research is combined with a strong personal narrative. Recently, I've seen a lot of essays exploring the significance of singular words. What is the reason behind this trend? And how does this piece benefit from centering around one word? Words are, I think, one of the cornerstones of culture, right? And I think there's something about using this very small part of the whole to illuminate a whole culture and whole society that I think works especially well for this essay, right? And this is something I've also come across. Um, I have asked for and I have explicitly looked for political pieces um, when I'm slushing, right? Or when I'm asking for submissions. But I think it can be sort of easy, too easy to get into this sort of polemical space where it kind of just stays in the realm of ideas or it doesn't really seem to be attached to anything really specific or concrete to the person in question or the essayist in question. So I think the great thing about having a word to anchor an essay around, um, especially in the case of Kant, is that it's very focused, it's very personal, but you could also use just that one word to explore a wide range of issues. In this case, what does it mean to basically look at this word cunt 
and go from there. The idea of essays that focus on the political, um, which you mentioned that you look for specifically, makes me sort of think about identity when it comes to creative nonfiction. I, I wanted to talk about something that that you um, made a choice to do as a, as the nonfiction editor at Indiana Review. In poetry and fiction, we vote blind, which means that the editor knows the names of the people that they're selecting and the editor might also solicit. That editor then puts together a box and brings it to readers at Indiana Review and we don't see the names of the uh, poets or the fiction writers. Um, however, Anna, you made the decision to include the names of the authors in the nonfiction box this year. I remember you talking about how that has something to do with identity. So do you want to talk about that a little bit? Um, there is a precedent um, in Indiana Review, at least in nonfiction. I don't think I've seen like uh, non-blind submissions in fiction or poetry for a while. But at least last year's editor... Um, did choose to also leave the names on the essays. And I think we chose to do that for pretty similar reasons. Um, I think in poetry and nonfiction, there is this idea that the speaker or the narrator, I guess depending on the genre, isn't necessarily the writer. Nonfiction is kind of a weird genre, right? Because it's in its name, it's not, it's basically nonfiction, right? Um, it's not really something distinct on its own as opposed to poetry or fiction. So yeah, I mean, nonfiction is supposed to be about true stories. Now we can sort of talk about um, what true means, and that's an entire podcast in its own, right? Mm -hmm. But I think especially for the types of essays I'm attracted to or the types of stories people are telling, I do think it's important to know who's telling the story. Because unlike poetry or unlike fiction, you can't say this is this is not me, right? Nonfiction, I think, at least I say this as an essayist, um, there is sort of like a bit of a persona you put on, right? Or at least you choose to highlight aspects of yourself that uh, you decide you want to present in this essay, right? But mm -hmm. I think with essays and I think with nonfiction that because you're basically saying this is me, then we should know who you are when you're voting on the essay. I think the question of identity, it's sort of hard to really parse out because it is this is an essay in which identity is very, very much tied in with um, the SAS identity, right? This is um, an SAS who very clearly identifies herself as like a woman in the essay, is grappling with this um, term that's been pretty much used as a gendered insult, right? So I think this is, I think this essay works really well. Not only is like Sean Griffiths the um, writer trying to grapple with this word, right? The history of this word, the etymology of this word, context in which this word is used and how it's changed. Um, she's also negotiating her her identity, right? And how it relates to this word, right? Because um, she spends a lot of time in the essay uh, parsing out power, right? She has some power as the professor, right? As the instructor as the instructor. And she's also talks a lot about the student's identity in relation to her, right? So um, oftentimes, um, identity and power aren't simple. Because it's not just that the student used an offensive word in front of her, right? It's also that the student used an offensive word in front of her that can refer specifically to her, right? Um, someone who identifies as a woman, and someone who has the body part in question. Yes, I would want to know who the author was of this essay, because this essay is about a word that is gendered, right? It's a gendered insult. It's always pretty much been used against anyone that isn't a cis man, specifically. Having read Cunt, a reader might 
think, oh, I have an essay kind of like this um, and I want to submit it. What what makes Cunt the ideal essay? What does Cunt do well that you want to see done well in your uh, submissions? One of the great joys of being a genre editor for Indiana Review or just being an editor for Indiana Review in general is being forced to question my own taste and what I consider good. Um, because I think one of the great things about reading slush is that you're kind of confronted with stuff you wouldn't necessarily pick up on your own. You're being like forced to look through uh, submissions and learning to admire stuff you wouldn't necessarily admire, right? I will say Kant is very much in the style of an essay I do tend to enjoy. But that being said, I think what stood out about Kant to me as an essay was the depth of research, and I think that the research was tied with this very complicated personal narrative, right? The narrative is on the surface pretty straightforward, but I do get a lot of research pieces, but sometimes they're maybe not submitted to, to the right venue, right? Mm-hmm. Um, when I'm saying like research heavy pieces are something I would like to see more of, I'm not necessarily looking for things that would be better suited to newspapers, right? Or to um, periodicals that um, attract a certain kind of long-form journalism, which is not to say I wouldn't like to see some long-form journalism, but I think especially because we only publish twice a year. Um, when I'm looking for heavily researched pieces, I'm looking for research pieces that seem to not only be sort of timeless, right? And I mean, timeless is kind of a tricky phrase to use, but I'll throw it out there. I think I'm looking for pieces that seem to mean to mean something important to the essayist is probably what I have to say. I always say this to the students I teach in my fiction workshop, uh, my undergraduate students, is that um, the specifics is what makes a work special, right? It's what gives it its emotional resonance. And I think that um, that this essay manages to achieve both this sort of like tight specificity, right? This tight focus on someone's life while at the same time reaching out to something wider, right? Um, this kind of like country, this society that devalues women, right? That tries to put women and other people who aren't cis men, right, in their place. Mm-hmm. Um, and the ways they do it range a lot, right? And I mean, this essay is was relevant at the time we um, accepted and published it, right, with the election of Donald mm-hmm. Trump. And it remains relevant now with the Me Too movement, right, yes. is that this essay has managed to achieve a timeliness, right, that doesn't feel like it'll ever be dated, necessarily. And I think that's what I... I always look for is like an essay that's both deeply personal but is also looking outward. Hopefully someday it'll be dated. That day is probably far in the future. Um, well, thank you so much, Anna, for uh, talking about Cunt with me and um, choosing this piece by Sean Griffiths. You can find Indiana Review at Indiana Review on Twitter. You can find us on Facebook and instagram by the same name we also we also have a website indianareview.org anna how can people find you to talk more about submitting nonfiction pieces or about the pieces that that you selected 
Um, of course, there's always the uh, Indiana Review email, which is uh, on our website. But I also can be found at www.anacabe.com. So A-N-N-A-C-A-B-E dot com. Um, and I'm also on Twitter, at Anna Blabs. Pretty much on social media all the time, so I'm happy to chat. <laughs> Great. And I am Hannah Thompson. I can be found at Hands Love Handles on Twitter or in the email section at Indian Review if you have if you want to talk to me about the podcast. Thanks so much for listening. We'll see you next month.